Well, good morning, and apparently it has become my thing to go on stage excessively early. Um, so that's what happens when I, uh, when I get some stage time. Hey, I'm happy to be with you this morning. Uh, Robert and Susan are in Colorado on a much-needed and much-deserved vacation, just kind of enjoying some time together without the kids, and he'll be back next week. But I'm thrilled to stand in his place this morning and continue in our series of Will God Come Through? And so this morning we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll have the verses on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them as well. 2 Kings chapter 7. And while you're turning there, um, you know, we, we don't typically think of First and Second Kings of being books that are um, immediately applicable to us uh, or immediately helpful to us. Um, but I submit to you this morning that they are, um, they are rich in understanding the character and nature of God. They help us understand who God is better and how we relate to Him. So these are not simply... Old Testament books that are full of history and battles and obscure names and obscure places, but these are Christian books that teach us how to love and obey the Lord better. So dig in with me, if you will, to 2 Kings chapter 7. Uh, We'll read the first nine verses. 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate, And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, They went into a tent, and they ate ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off the things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and if we're silent until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. This is God's word. And what a seemingly bizarre and confusing word this appears to be. When I got asked to preach this week, I looked at this text that Robert had picked months ago, and I said, hmm, thanks for choosing me. But this is a rich passage that teaches us something about God. So what is here for us? And what do we learn about God? And how does it relate to us taking a risk? So during the American Civil War in 1865, 
Um, in Richmond, Virginia, store signs advertise the following prices. $20 for a pound of bacon. Remember, this is 1865, so adjust for inflation what that would be today. $20 for a pound of bacon. $50 for one live chicken. $15 for one pound of beef. And $20 for a pound of butter. It was war. Times were desperate. People were starving. In 2 Kings, we also see desperation. But on a much, much grander scale. So here's the background that our text for today is set against. So the story really begins in chapter 6, verse 24, and it continues all the way through chapter 7, verse 20. So we're kind of right in the middle of it here. Um, But here's what was going on. So the king of Syria, uh, a gentleman, and I use that term loosely, uh, a gentleman named Ben-Hadad II had surrounded the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria. Remember, we're in, the, we're in the dual kingdom here, so we have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem. The capital of northern Israel was Samaria. So Ben-Hadad II, who's the king of Syria, had surrounded Samaria trying to capture Israel. Syria lies about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. And this is the second time that Ben-Hadad had done this. He, the first time he came against the city, um, nothing, I mean, it was kind of a stalemate. Lots of people died, but he kind of gave up and went back home. This is the second time now he's come. And this time, he completely surrounds the city of Samaria so that nothing can get in the city, nothing can get out of the city. So they're completely blockaded. And even though there was plenty of food and land and there was plenty going on, inside the city walls... An absolutely devastating famine broke out. We're not exactly when this occurred. Uh, We're not exactly certain when this occurred. Um, The king of Israel in this passage isn't named, but most scholars believe that this was King Joram, who uh, reigned in the northern kingdom of Israel from 841 B.C. to 852 B.C. So it's likely sometime in that uh, that ballpark of time, because we know that Ben-Hadad II reigned in Syria at the same time. So most scholars believe that's who it is. King Joram was the son of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. But because the famine was so severe, and because there was nothing to eat, Absolutely repulsive and unclean, meaning non-kosher food, was being eaten and sold at astronomical prices. People were, we read in chapter 6 that people were, um, they were eating the heads of donkeys, um, which there's a lot of things wrong with that. One, donkeys were a, were a major source of commerce. They were a source of transportation. So it'd be like taking apart your engine in your car to fix your toaster because you're desperate for parts. But it's also disgusting. Um, and there's not much caloric value in a donkey head, but it also breaks the kosher law. They're unclean. Not only that, people were eating, this is, this is gross, dove dung. And they, were, they were eating this. and they were, Not only were they eating this, they were selling it at just un- amazingly high prices because there was nothing to eat. And we even read in chapter 6 that some had unthinkably resorted to cannibalism. So this is what's happening in Samaria. And one day King Joram is walking through the city and he sees the suffering of of the people in the city that he's supposed to lead and deliver. And he sees their suffering and it's so great and he realizes how bad it really is for these people. And he sees it and he blames God. 
And because he knows that the prophet Elisha speaks for God and stands between God and the people, he says, I know what will fix this. I'm going to take off Elisha's head. So he sends his captain over to Elisha's house to kill Elisha. And Elisha says, he proclaims the word of the Lord to the captain and he says, in one day, real food will be available at a decent price. So all of this is going on and here comes this crazy promise that in one day's time, actual food will be available at a real decent price. And when the captain doesn't believe it and he laughs at what God says, Elisha responds to the captain that the captain will see what God will do, but he won't experience it. And so this brings us up to the passage we read just a minute ago and this random story about four lepers that doesn't really seem to fit at all into the rest of the narrative. So what is God telling us here? Why is this in the Bible? How does it help us? So as our guide today, I submit the following um, kind of premise statement. That it is worth the risk to believe the God who promises. It's worth the risk to believe the God who protects. And it's worth the risk to believe the God who provides. Even in the face of insurmountable and hopeless odds. So let's see how the Bible helps us get to that conclusion. So verses 1 and 2, But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. We're seeing here, it's worth the risk to believe the God who promises. So Elisha says, Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And then the captain who, on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So for clarification's sake, a seah was a little over seven liters. So imagine you know, a liter of coke, all, we're in the South, all Cokes are Cokes, unless it's a Dr. Pepper or a Pepsi or something like that. But seven liters was a Sia, and a, and a, and a shekel was about 11 grams, presumably of silver. So uh, that's, that's the kind of measurements there. So when we understand how desperate the situation in Samaria was during this famine, the promise that God makes through Elisha is absolutely astounding. God promised that real food would be sold at a decent price literally one day after the king of Israel encountered people committing cannibalism in the city square in complete desperation. So let's look at this promise from God. Now remember, this is happening on the heels of King Joram sending the captain to Elisha's house to kill him. And Elisha makes this promise from God to the captain for Samaria through Elisha. And we can't skip over the fact that this promise is prefaced by the phrase, thus says the Lord, which in the Old Testament always indicated that God himself is directly speaking with no interjection on the part of the prophet. So these are God's words to the people on his own, by himself. God on his own and by his own word himself is promising that there will be food available in one day. So can God be believed? You know, it's easy for us to read the captain's sneering response and think that we might have reacted differently. You know, here we are in an absolute crisis. Things are, things are real bad. 
real bad. And, and, and here comes God saying, hey, you know what? In a day, there's going to be some real food. And you're gonna, this is going to be over with. Sounds really good, right? But when is it ever our natural default to believe what God has said? When do we ever simply just trust his promises? Elsewhere in the Old Testament, after everything God had done, Abraham didn't believe that God would give him a son and keep his promise. After everything else God had done, Moses didn't believe that God would bring forth water from the rock with just his word. Paul says, and this is amazing, Paul in 1 Timothy, when writing to Timothy, Paul says that the reason he didn't believe in God and the reason that he formerly blasphemed against God was, don't miss this, because Paul, quote, acted ignorantly in unbelief. In Matthew 13, Jesus refused to do miracles in a certain city because of the people's unbelief. In Mark 6, Jesus marveled at the people's unbelief. And then when the people finally got their hands on Jesus, instead of believing him, they crucified and rejected him. Do you see the theme here? Doubting, unbelief, rejection of God's word. It's just the default position of the human heart. That's just where we are. One of my favorite authors and speakers, um, a, a lady named Rosaria Butterfield, Rosaria was a, um, Rosaria, I don't, I don't know her, Dr. Butterfield, uh, was a professor at Syracuse University in, uh, in, in the 90s. She taught English literature, um, and she was a militant atheist, and she was a militant lesbian feminist who hated all things Christianity and actively engaged in trying to destroy Christianity. And she got a new neighbor who happened to be a, a Presbyterian pastor. They struck up a friendship because they both loved to read. And over the course of many years, she becomes a Christian and renounces her former way of life. And in her book, she says, I wasn't converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. It's our default position. The king's captain then is simply acting quite naturally. Because any one of us would have done that had we not had our eyes opened by the Lord. But don't miss this. Because what's so striking here is that the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, is teaching us that faith and belief is required for us to please God. Did you catch that? That the Old Testament is calling us to faith in God? That the Old Testament is calling us to belief in God's Word? I wonder what you think of that. Elisha has preached the word of God and declared his promise to the king's captain, but because the captain didn't believe it, he won't receive the promise. Now, we, we might not be very familiar with 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 2, but we are a, a lot more familiar with another verse in the Bible that sounds a lot like this one in John chapter 3, verse 18, where John writes, Whoever believes him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. Can you see what type of belief the Bible is calling us to here? We're being called to believe the actual promises that God has made, that which he has revealed, actually revealed in his word. This isn't some generalized faith that just believes that God will do some bizarre random thing if we just close our eyes and wish hard enough. 
You know, it's popular today to talk about just, just have faith, man. You just, you've got to believe it. Have faith in faith, whatever that might mean. We're not being called to just see something and achieve it. No, we're being called to hear the word of the Lord and to believe that God himself will do what God has promised, what only he can do, and believe that and trust that he will actually do it. This is exactly why Paul says in Romans 10, 14, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who have they, who have they, who have they not heard? And how do they hear without someone preaching? And so that's why we're here this morning. So we hear the word of the Lord and we believe and it's risky. It might cost us everything, including our very lives. In fact, it will cost us everything. But look at the alternative. Look at what Elisha says to the captain regarding unbelief. He will see what God can do, but he won't experience it. Is there anything worse than that? Is there anything worse than missing out on what only God can do? I think the only thing worse than missing out on what God can do is missing out on God himself. It can be hard to believe. It can be hard to trust, but we must. And here's how gracious the Lord is to us in this. He acknowledges the difficulty we'll have in believing. In in Mark 9, we, we had this amazing account of Jesus meeting a father who has a son who's sick. And Jesus' disciples try to heal this boy, but they can't do it. And so the father looks at Jesus in complete desperation and says, if you're able, please do anything you can to help. And Jesus said, all things are possible for one who believes. And here's the father's response. I believe, but help my unbelief. If that wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it's true. Because God is literally saying, just barely believe me. The Lord is, he is acknowledging that it's hard for us to believe his promises. He's acknowledging it's hard for us to believe what he said. I believe, but help my unbelief. The Lord is inviting us to barely, barely believe him. Take the risk. Hold up the empty hands of faith. Let the Lord fill them. Move all of your chips onto the Lord's square and believe him. It's well worth it. I barely believe, but I believe And the Lord promises to help us in our unbelief. So I I feel like I could stop preaching here and we could sing and go home because that's that's good stuff from the word of God there. But we've got more to the story, so we're going to continue. Now we come to this random account of these four lepers. and How does it fit in? We're going to look at their interesting line of reasoning. So it's, it's worth the risk to believe the God who promises, but it's also worth the risk to believe the God who protects Verses 3 through 7. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So come now, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians... Behold, there was no one there, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. 
So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. I mean, what on earth? I mean, how many times have you, have you read, well, probably not as many as I did this week, but I read this and I'm like, this will be fun. At first reading, these verses really seem to be out of place and can be really difficult to figure out what's going on. But, um, you know, this, here we are, and this, this is like a story within a story about these four lepers in the middle of a war. But I remembered something a professor of mine said once in seminary, and he said, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that is for our information only. And what he meant by that is that the entire Bible, this is backed up by what Jesus said, that the law, the prophets, and the writings all attest to me. They're all about Jesus. So somehow this works in, and this is, um, every word of the Bible is about God, and this is true in this case too. So let's look at these lepers. So just by way of explanation, the word used in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament for leprosy, can mean many types of different skin ailments. We've probably heard that before. From anything from a temporary uh, condition to a permanent or fatal condition. Um, most, you know, anything from like, you know, rosacea to uh, eczema to, to acne to all the way up and including Hansen's disease, which is what probably most of us, if we've grown up in church, have the, uh, the picture in our head about a leper kind of wrapped up with sores all over, white spots and fingers and arms falling off and eventually dying. That's part of it, but not necessarily exclusively. So it really can mean just kind of any kind of dermatological disorder. So we don't really know what these men had. But we do know that they were ceremonially unclean. And they had to live outside of the city walls until they either were healed of their disease or died. And ironically, their exclusion from society might have been what saved their lives since inside the city walls, everyone was starving to death. Regardless, though, these were men with very, very little to gain and absolutely nothing to lose. These guys knew that if they remained where they were, they would either die of their disease, die of exposure, die of starvation, be attacked by a wild animal and die, or be killed by the Syrian army that was attacking Samaria, causing them to die. They also knew that if they broke back into Samaria, they'd likely die of starvation like so many others. They only had one bad option, which was to throw themselves onto the, the, the mercy of the Syrian army. And if you know anything about the ancient Syrian military, um, the mercy of the Syrian army is an oxymoron. They had a really, really harsh culture and treated their prisoners very poorly. Their prospects with the army weren't very good. They'd either be killed immediately, tortured and killed, or brutally forced into slavery. But if they became slaves, they might have something to eat. This week was Nick Crawford's birthday, and so as a staff, we, we got him a, a magic eight ball. Um, and you know, we said, hey, no, listen, we pray and seek the Lord when we make decisions here. So we, we got him that as a joke. We can, we can be fun just because we're Christians doesn't mean we can't have a good time. So we said, Nick, here's a magic eight ball. Shake it up and we got to make a decision and see what it says. You know, if, you, if you've got one of those, you know, there's all kinds of answers. So these guys are sitting outside and they look at their magic eight ball and they shake it. 
uh, die out here by a lot of different ways, go in the city and starve to death, or like go over to like the most brutal army on the face of the earth and say, hey, can you take care of us? So shake it, shake it. Hmm. Outlook's not so good. So as they're making their way to the camp, God did something miraculous. He made, them, he made the Syrians hear the sound of this great army that caused them to flee so that their camp was left completely deserted and all of their goods, most importantly the food, was up for grabs. This is the second time that God has done something miraculous like this. In chapter 6, Elisha preaches, people don't believe, and God showed up with actual horses and chariots to fulfill his word. This time, he does it with a rumor. Does it with a whisper. God just makes some people, he makes them hear this, and they freak out. So of course these guys, they, they, they go into the camp, they see all this stuff and they just go absolutely nuts, eating and drinking their fill, going back for seconds and even packing some away for later for their retirement fund. Then perhaps, I don't know what happened, their, their conscience got the better of them and um, they, they realized that, hey, you know, all of our friends and family and everybody we know, uh, if they're not dead already, they're in the city and they're starving to death and we got plenty of food. We should probably go tell them that there's food out here. And so that's exactly what they did. And here we have the reason for these four men. And this is why this is in the Bible. It was through these guys, the outcast, the nameless lepers, these men who in the grand scheme of things shouldn't matter, the untouchables. It was through these men that God would protect His promise. Did you catch that? That God would protect his promise. I wonder what you think of that. Because typically we think of God protecting us, and he most certainly does. There's, the Bible is full of promises um, that, that God looks after his people, that he provides for us, that he watches over us, that he, he is a shepherd, he is a father to the fatherless, and takes care of his, his people. That's 100% true. But here, God is protecting his promise. He's, the very promise that he made through Elisha that Samaria would have food, his very own word, God is miraculously protecting his promise through outcast lepers. Isaiah reminds us how serious the Lord is about his word. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah reminds us this. He says, he says and this is what God says about his own word. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So that's what God is doing here through these lepers. Through them and their actions, God is accomplishing His word. And as God would have it in his providential protection of his word and his promise that he uses the lowest of the low, the forgotten ones, the no-names, the never, the not even the has-beens, but the never-wases, to further his purpose to save. Isn't that just like God? I thought about using the phrase, that's just vintage God, but I thought that might make me too hipster, and I'm certainly not a hipster. 
But that is just exactly what God is like. Using the weakest to lead the strong. And doesn't that prove to us that God is worth the risk to believe? It's worth the risk to believe the God who protects not only his people, but his word as well. So you might be thinking that you don't matter. That all is hopeless. You're only 25 and you feel like you've messed up your life so bad that it's completely over and there's no future. You've lost your marriage. Your kids won't talk to you. That you'll never be normal again. You've sunk so far down into insignificance and failure that you'll never be useful to God again. He'll never love you again. If he ever even loved you at all. But God cares for you. God loves you. He uses the weakest among us to carry out his purpose and proclaim his promise. Take the risk. Believe the God who protects. As one of my, uh, one of my friends so often says, he's good at it. He's a professional. You can trust him. And we can even trust him in the midst of just absolutely dismal circumstances. So we know the story of Corey Ten Boom the Dutch Christian during World War II. She and her family quietly hid Jews in their home from the Nazis until a neighbor betrayed them and they were arrested. And uh, they were all themselves sent to a Nazi concentration camp as a result. And in her book, The Hiding Place, uh, which is just, if you haven't read it, please read it. It's a significant and important book. Um, She talks about how she and her sister Betsy were able to smuggle a Bible with them into the camp um, and that they would hold Bible studies for the other prisoners. One day they were moved to a new barracks that was absolutely infested with fleas. Nevertheless, they thanked God that they were together. They thanked him that they had a Bible. They even thanked him for the crowds of prisoners that were slammed into this tiny little room because it meant that more people could hear God's word. But one day, Betsy thanked God for the fleas. And Corey Ten Boom writes the following. The fleas? This was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God could make me thankful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, Betsy said. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances only. Fleas are a part of this place where God has put us. And so, Corey writes, we stood between the tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas, although I was sure that Betsy was wrong. Well, it turned out that Betsy wasn't wrong. Because there were so many fleas, the Nazi prison guards almost never entered that particular barracks because they didn't want to get fleas themselves. So that meant that Corey and Betsy could hold Bible studies more frequently and less secretively, and they didn't have to worry about being discovered by the guards because of the fleas. It's worth the risk to believe the God who protects and then it's worth the risk to believe the God who provides. So we'll finish, we'll finish out our text here. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and they ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. They came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it as well and went and hid them. Hid them. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until morning light, Punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. So the lepers, they go back to the gate. 
the city gate and they tell the, they tell the watchmen who tell the king and after the king uh, figures out that it's not some sort of Syrian trick like a Trojan horse, you know, to, to draw back, draw the Israelites out and then swarm them. Once he realizes that the Syrians are actually really gone, um, the people of Samaria, they rush into the city and they take all of the provisions for themselves. And after what wasn't eaten immediately was brought back, after what wasn't consumed immediately, what was left over was brought back into the city and food began to be sold at a reasonable price. Exactly what God said would happen through the prophet Elisha. The city was saved. And we also read that Joram, the king, placed the very captain that he had sent to kill Elisha at the city gate to manage the people going out to get the food. And there was such a clamor to get out to the food because people were so desperate, the captain was trampled to death and died. He saw God's provision, but because of his unbelief, didn't experience it and died, just as God said. So what is this about? What is this account telling us? Is it recorded for us just as a history lesson or that, so that we can learn some cool Bible trivia and impress our friends. Yes, this story actually occurred in history. This is a, this is a real historical account. Yes, God miraculously provided um, supernaturally and physically for the city of Samaria 3,000 years ago. But this story points us to something much greater. In what he has provided for us in a greater salvation in Jesus Christ. In the midst of our terrible circumstances, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our hopelessness, in the midst of our unbelief, in the midst of our hostility to God, God promises Jesus. He was proclaimed by the lowly. He came humbly. He calls us to belief. Those who believe in him are rescued while those who don't perish. This is the God who promises. This is the God who protects. And this is the God who provides. Don't miss him. So is it worth the risk to believe this God? Yes. Yes, it's worth it. Yes. Dr. Miles Van Pelt is a professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary down the road in Clinton, which is actually, I, I wrote this sermon in their library this week. Um, so I'm grateful to Dr. Van Pelt. And he, he wrote um, in the ESV study Bible, which some of y'all might have in your laps right now, he wrote the study notes to this, to this chat, to this entire book of First and Second Kings. And I love his insight, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote him as we close Dr. Van Pelt says this. He says, The siege of the Syrian army and the famine that accompanied it, accompanied it, accompanied it. I can't say that word. I'm, I'm reading it. I can't even say it. It was so severe that people were reduced to cannibalism. Things didn't just look hopeless. They were hopeless and tragically so. But if God intervened and did for Israel what it could not do for itself, he sent the foreign foreign invaders packing and fed all of Samaria with the contents from the enemy's camp. The incalculable nature of God's power is demonstrated by his ability to deliver us from the greatest of terrors with almost no effort at all. Indeed, what might even appear to be weakness. The trouble with deliverance like this, however, is that it's almost impossible for us to believe. In 2 Kings 7, 
the captain didn't believe the good news because it seemed ridiculously impossible. Then at the end, he perished because of his unbelief. We're reminded that our salvation depends not only on God's willingness to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, but also because his deliverance is so great, it depends on hearts ready to believe that his salvation is true. When God's outrageous free grace seems just too good to be true, believe it. It was designed to be outrageous and remarkable. Grace involves no balancing of the scales, no careful weighing of merits and demerits. Because because of Christ's atoning work, God's grace washes over us and into our lives regardless of what we deserve or don't deserve. Humble yourself and receive it. Let's pray. And as we pray, the band will come up. And uh, when I... When I finish, during the time that we're singing, um, there will be some people here to pray with, uh, pray with you if you would like. That would be our honor to do that with you. But pray with me, will you? Lord, you are, um, you are a God who promises. You are a God who protects. And you are a God who provides. And Lord, we thank you for what you did um, in Israel. We thank you for what you did in the city of Samaria when there was such overwhelming odds we thank you for providing for those people but Lord we thank you even more in our hopelessness and in our desperation Lord that you promised Jesus that he is the bread of life that he is the living water that whoever tastes will never thirst again Lord we we ask you to give us belief and we ask you to help us in our unbelief you're so gracious to give us that so Lord we we hold up our empty hands of faith and we ask you to fill them we trust you we believe you in Jesus name Amen let's stand again